This current theme that I'm working on and through in front of you, that of walking a spiritual path in a deeply human way and a human path in a deeply spiritual way is a lifelong process. By the way, if somebody were to ask you what it means to be a Christian, you could give them this definition. To walk the spiritual path in a human way and the human path in a spiritual way. So today I want to talk with you about some steps along the way of this journey and I want to begin with some more or less general comments and observations and then as I promised last week I want to get into one of the many models of spiritual growth and development that is available to us on our journey. Now somebody asked me why I was calling these talks love letters to modern mystics and there are many reasons. First of all because of love love letters. Um, it's the love that exists between us that leads to healing of any kind. Love is um, that which precedes, infuses, undergirds the two other principles which are honesty and truth and freedom. Those two things can't be present unless there's love. And second, the nature of being is what's been of central interest to the world's religions since the beginning of the human species. And although religions differ from each other, and no, not all religions are the same, they have common core teachings. And the primary one is the one that we know is the teaching of the golden rule. Don't do to others what you would not have done to yourself. And that teaching, along with some others, is found in a collection of teachings that's known as the perennial tradition. And it's found in all religious traditions, all, all traditions all over the world from the beginning of the humans. And this is the principle that's been taught by the mystics, not by the dogmatists. The dogmatists have been the ones that have read, led the religious people into various battles the battle for being right, while the mystics have been focused, and I don't mean this as disparagingly as it sounds, the mystics have focused on being nice, on being pleasant, on being agreeable and inclusive and, and loving. And as a consequence, mystics have been marginalized, and consequently they are far less immediately impactful, as are the dogmatists. The Christian crusaders of the ninth and 10th centuries went out to kill other human beings. The mystics went into monasteries. For example, whatever you might think about something like the Vietnam War, it was not fought by people like Thich Nhat Hanh and, Thich Nhat Hanh and Martin Luther King Jr. They were more responsible for stopping it. And that's a real victory, not a battle. So that's why it ends up that so few people in Christian churches today know anything about their mystic tradition or about their, their uh, wisdom tradition. Indeed, dogmatists want to make mysticism sound spooky and airy-fairy and not substantive. So along the way, I hope to offer many definitions of mysticism and what it means to be a mystic. And <clears throat> Today you'll hear a few. Being a mystic means jumping into the flow rather than standing on the bank of the river. Um, you will hear about the difficult journey of moving 
your spiritual journey from your head to your heart, which may be the most difficult journey people make. And there are other attempts to clarify and define and demystify mysticism. But before getting into the specifics of one model of spiritual growth, I want to give some general overarching things that we can say about the subject in general. First of all, becoming a human is a lifelong process. Second, it is not an automatic process. It involves deliberate, conscious effort. Some of us sometimes reveal what low expectations we have of what it means to be a human. We screw up and we say to those around us, well, I'm only human. As if that were an excuse, when in fact the mystics see that being human is the pinnacle of the evolutionary experience. And now, backed up by what we know of uh, recent cosmological finding, the, um, the evolution of the human is that which gives the earth the capacity to reflect back on itself. If you see us as one organism, the human is the glory of God, not an excuse for failure. We have this wonderful opportunity to participate in a personal communal unfolding. And further, the way we do this work here in ordinary life has consequences for what's out there and it reverberates all through the cosmos. Another thing I would say about the process of spiritual growth is that it always involves a major shift on the platform on which we stand to experience the world, other people, and ourselves. And these shifts are so dramatic that the best of spiritual teachers have talked about them as being born again, having a new life, a new birth, living in a new world. Now, my personal journey has been one of knowing, being part of, and defending right religion, right religious beliefs. I started there and now see that religions can easily be a trap. I'm not talking about trading in one set of religious beliefs for another. I, I, what I'm talking about in the movement that we're going to talk about today and ongoing, it's like moving from one country to another. And you have to learn new customs, new dietary rules, new language, new ways of interacting. It's that dramatic of a shift. Another thing I would say is that this transformation always emerges out of integration, not destruction. Now, we do need to deconstruct a lot of biblical understanding and religious beliefs, but we're not destroying them. We're just trying to see them differently. I think one of the most valuable things I've learned from Ken Wilber is that when we transcend one stage of understanding and move to another, we do not destroy, forget, or get rid of the other stage. We include it. So Wilbur has the phrase, transcend and include. Include and transcend as we move from one stage to another. Um, it's also important to know that spiritual growth is not inevitable. Getting older is no guarantee of the kind of maturity I'm talking about. 
I have met 60, 70, 80-year-old people who are 13 when it comes to spiritual development. And I have met people who are in their 30s and 40s who are elders in terms of their spiritual understanding. Some of the wisest spiritual people that I have run into in my life, I have encountered in children in the cancer wards at the hospitals here in Houston. They've had a, a crash course in spiritual development. And the last thing I'll say here, though there is much, much more that can be said, is that if we're honest, we will know where we are in the spiritual journey. You know whether you're standing on the side of the river or you've jumped in. You will know. There's not a person over the years that I have seen in spiritual direction or counseling who doesn't have an answer when I say, where are you stuck? We know. We know where we are in this journey. And we know whether being in the river is contributing to our evolving, whether we're responding to the invitation to move further along or not. I do know that you can't do this work timidly. You can't do it in little baby steps. That's why it's called the leap of faith by the theologians, not baby steps of faith. And uh, people say, well, it's terrifying to leave what I've had. It's only terrifying if you focus on your fear. If you focus on what you're hungry for, love, truth, and freedom, and getting as much of that as you can before you drop the body, it's exciting. It's thrilling. There's nothing to be frightened of. So we'll return to talk more about the general topic of spiritual growth and transformation. There, there is so much to say. It seems to me sometimes that there are countless theories of self and soul development. And it's relatively easy to become familiar with them. Go home and after you've searched for cut and restored rope, search for theories of spiritual development on Google and they will come up in abundance. Um, I'm familiar with many of them because it's my job. Uh, both as a psychologist and as a spiritual teacher, I think that's what I ought to be conversing in. Ken Wilber's theory has 11 stages of spiritual development. Father Richard Rohrs has six. Bill Plotkin, by the way, he is the spiritual sociologist from whom I first heard that 80% of the American population is stuck at late adolescent development. He's, he's the one from whom I first heard that. His theory has eight levels. So the one that I'm going to use today comes from a, a friend of mine, former friend of mine, uh, Jim Fowler, James Fowler. I met uh, Jim Fowler back in the 60s, and he was just then beginning to be interested in this topic. And he remained interested in it, and um, we stayed in touch back and forth, one thing and another. And then coincidentally or providentially, depending on your point of view, when I went to Harvard, he was teaching in a seminar, research seminar, he was researching levels of spiritual development. And I got for that year that I was at Harvard to sit with Jim in that. <clears throat> Jim Fowler was a wonderful guy. He died way too early. He died at 75, very young man. So I'm gonna use the one that, that Jim Fowler uh, came up with because as I said, I was in on the ground floor of that. 
I, before I do that, I want to I want to say that Fowler stresses the difference between belief and faith. Belief involves making an intellectual assent to some concept or proposition. It's the kind of thing you find in the creeds of the church, in the books of theology that explain the creeds of the church. We got a lot of that. We got a lot of this stuff that we've collected about belief. Faith, on the other hand, is how a person's behavior relates to what a person believes to be true and of ultimate value. I may believe that the tile on the side of the pool says 10 feet deep here, but I show my faith in that belief when I jump into the pool. Right? There's a difference between having faith and belief. Faith is what gives purpose and direction to one's life and shapes how you live. And every one of you, whether you claim to be religious or not, live by faith. I love Frederick Beekner's definition of faith. If he says, if you don't know what you believe, just watch your feet. Because your feet will take you in the direction of what you really believe, right? If I believe that I should have a healthy diet and my feet take me to the potato chip row, I don't really have faith in that belief. That's what he's saying in that belief. Faith is very difficult to put into words. It's never difficult to put into action. As I said last week, the, not, the issue is not so much whether we believe in God or not, but how we do God. How you understand what that word means, and then how we put that understanding into life by the way that we live our lives. So before I quickly give you Jim Fowler's stages of faith, I want to be clear that the stages of faith that you're going to see listed on the screen belong to the late Jim Fowler. He did this work. The definition of the stages of faith, I take full responsibility for. These are my words. They're not Jim Fowler's words. So whether I accurately represent him or not, I'm a trust. And I, 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 want, I want you to be clear. As we go through these, the stages of faith don't reflect your relationship to God. Nor do they tell you whether you're a good person or not or how good you are at your religion. They are simply markers on the journey of awareness and, and, and how that awareness reflects how we orient ourselves toward what we say we truly believe. Fowler gives seven stages of development, and I want to be clear, as I said, the stages are his, but what I say about them are mine. Uh, Fowler has a stage that he calls stage zero. And it's not really a stage. But he gives it this designation because it's a pre-stage of faith. It's the stage of faith those two-year-olds are at, out in the playground out there. It's a period that lasts somewhere between birth and two or four years old. Um, we're pre-linguistic at this time. We don't have any of the cognitive structures to have a faith. So this is when the infant is adapting to the environment over which that infant has no control or very little control. Infants can organize a house at 2 a.m. in the morning. I know that. But 
they don't really have any control, if you know what I mean. So Fowler named this stage zero, stage zero. And so I just want to say to the guy who invented zero, thanks for nothing. <clears throat> I like that joke. So here we are in entirely at the mercy of our fate. You have no choice unless you are Hindu, devout, or some levels of Buddhist, uh, some levels of Oriental religions. You have no choice about your parents. Destiny doesn't really begin to play a role in our lives until we're late adolescent, for most of us. The scholars that I trust in doing biblical archaeological research and focus on Jesus, I'm talking about now John Dom Dominic Crossan and, and, and others, say that Jesus likely left home when he was 12 or 13. That was the kind of rule in that time, in that culture. This is very different from the culture in which we live. So um, during the first two years of our lives, we're learning how to survive. We're learning how to adapt to the environment in which we've been born. Now, the first developmental model to which I was introduced in psychology was that uh, of one that was thought up by a guy named Eric Erickson, a German psychologist. And Eric Erickson, I found out later, had the privilege of naming himself. And that's why he named himself Eric Erickson. It's a fascinating story about that. But Erickson said that during this first stage, which is not a stage, the real task that must be accomplished by the infant is that of basic trust. If we grow up in an environment where we are loved and nurtured and the environment is more or less predictable and steady in terms of caretakers and all that sort of stuff, we develop this platform of basic trust. If the environment in which we grow, it does not have that and we don't have good bonding, we're not exposed to sane or stable behaviors, then we get off to a shaky start and we don't have that basic trust. So you can see how important it is for a culture, for a culture to provide as much stability for babies as possible. And you can also notice where our politicians want to cut programs. It's not in the long-term interest of the country. But if an infant is neglected, abused, exposed to toxic role models, that infant is off to a sad start when it comes to developing a faith. And as I said, what the world needs is for infants to experience uh, an environment that leads to trust and to hope. And Erickson believed, and to some degree all developmental theorists also believe, that every stage of faith development is built on the stage that precedes it. So that if you don't successfully, in Erickson's model, achieve basic trust, you can't go on to the next level. And the fancy word in psychology we use for this is epigenetic. It means epa upon genetic birth. The next stage is born upon the one that precedes it. Eight stages, epigenetic. I like to throw that word around. So stage one is called the intuitive projective stage of faith. Now, it was during this period of my time, my life, that I developed a fear of the dark. 
And that fear of the dark has motivated me to this very moment to find out, experience as much light as possible. The child between the ages of three and seven doesn't have an inner structure to protect him or her from the unconscious. So imagination runs wild. And while we're awake, boy, we can fly, we can do all sorts of things. I remember years and years ago sitting in my study working on my doctoral dissertation and looking up out the window and my son, who was about five at the time, six or seven maybe, had used a cleat tree to climb up on top of the garage and he had sewn around him or clipped around him his Superman cape that his mother had made for him. And he was poised on the edge of the garage. And thank goodness I got to him in time because he was convinced that that cape gave him the power to fly safely off the garage. So imagination runs wild during this time. And imagination runs wildly at night for these children, for all of us. This is when nightmares come to us. And, and we can take them as being so true. Nighttime brings um, nightmares, and this is the time of life when we're most influenced by the beliefs and behaviors of our parents. And I would not know until decades later after doing intense family therapy by bringing my parents to Houston to do therapy what an environment of anxiety I grew up in. So that was really helpful for me to see that. We absorb things at this level with no filter. Sherry, who is an expert in this and focused on this in her clinical work when she was working, says that kids are like vacuum cleaners. They suck up everything. They don't have the filters to know what to do with it. They don't have the life experience, the verbal skills, the cognitive skills, but it's all in there. You may have heard of the book, The Body Keeps the Score. We don't forget anything. We just take it in and store it. That's very important to know. So during this stage of life, Children love stories. And parents will say, oh, you shouldn't expose stories to children that scare them. Listen. I'll tell you that there's not a story you can tell a child that the child hadn't already thought about. They're Harry Potter stories. We're alive in children. That's why they resonated so much with them when they came out. They knew those stories internally. The Harry Potter stories were our times grim fairy tales, Grimm's fairy tales. And, and one developmental psychologist writes of this time in our lives, quote, faith at this intuitive projective stage is trust in superheroes who know the reality of the inner world and the outer world dangers, but can be counted upon to deliver the vulnerable child from them. Now, what stage is our culture? More at this stage than the one that's coming. What's the most popular entertainment out there? Superheroes of all kinds that appeals to the American psyche, and that's, that's why. So, then there's stage two, the mythic literal faith. And this is where children learn about fairness and justice. Any child at this level will let you know what they think isn't fair. And if you've had children, you know you went through this period of time with your child. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. And I would say that fairness forms the basis of faith for, 
for us at this level of our development. The, the children learn at this age the stories about people who are like us and people who are different from us. I learned that really profoundly in the South about African-American people. Lessons that my mother and father, well-intentioned people, used to explain to me why my best friend, Jimmy Brown, couldn't come to church with me because he was black. And they don't like that, was the story. So the, 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 story, the child takes these stories and beliefs that are central to the community that they grow up in, and they become my story. They become the story that I live. Now, um, it is not uncommon for a person to stay at this stage of faith until they die. Fundamentalists of all stripes are stuck at this stage of development. There's a belief about the way the universe works, and the belief is that the good will be rewarded and the bad will be punished, that there's a fairness out there somewhere. There's very little self-reflective ability to know or to seek what determines one's own behavior or the behavior of some other person. And um, this stage is a perfect example of how faith is much more defined by what we believe than how we believe. Now, when you step back and look at it, if you look at a fundamentalist Jew or a fundamentalist Muslim or a fundamentalist Christian, they have much more in common than they have different between them. Stage three is called the synthetic conventional faith stage. Now, by synthetic, Fowler means that the growing child now draws together the disparate elements that the child experiences into one identity. It's not real. It's synthetic. And by conventional, Fowler means that the values and beliefs that the child held, holds, are derived from the culture around the child. So they're made up, and they come from my tribe. That's this level of development. And for the most part, the beliefs that we have at this level are accepted without question. Um, I, I remember um, a phrase that was very common when I grew up in the church community where I grew up was, um, the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it. And um, I remember one time going to my father and saying, do you believe the story of Jonah in the Bible? That Jonah was sw swallowed by a whale? And this is the answer my father gave me with absolute straight truth. He said, son, if the Bible said that Jonah swallowed the whale, I would believe that. Now, you know that's nuts. Right? But that's what I was taught. The child being dependent on these big people for survival stays in line. So authority is very important at this stage. Identity is based on alignment with the community's values, the community's practices, the community's beliefs. And this is how one discovers meaning and direction in life. Now, important here is that critical reflection on one's faith is discouraged 
by other people in this level of development. Because if you start questioning, you risk being called a non-believer. Or worse, you will hear somebody say, well, he's no longer one of us. And this is why the power of excommunication was so powerful in the ancient Roman and Eastern churches. Because if somebody was shunned from the community, that was a fate worse than death. Now, what's critical to know is that this stage of faith development is where the majority of this country is. And folks, we're just at level three. Now think about that. This is where the majority of our folks are. Now, I didn't mean to say that these people don't have convictions. They do. But they are convictions that have not been deeply examined. And people at this stage of faith development relate to God in the same way that they relate to their faith community. So if they do something that violates what their faith community says, they're shunned. If they do something that they think God doesn't like, they're shunned by God as well. Not consistent with the teaching of Jesus. Another thing that's very true about this stage of faith development, if, it, if you are at this stage, the belief is, I've arrived. I know it. I've got the truth. I'm happy. We have the truth. But there's more. And stage four is what Fowler called individuative reflective faith. Two words my spell checker didn't like. So this is the time in life when most people are entering a career path, making a decision about who their lifelong partner is going to be. This is sometime in the 30s for people. Uh, though many people, uh, especially in Tennessee, make a decision about their life partner when they're much younger than that, you know. Uh, people in Tennessee around me were marrying at 16, 15, 17 years of age. Um, but if we're lucky, sometime in the 30s or 40s, we get hit with a question about what's it all about. And again, there's nothing automatic about this. A lot of people get kicked into this territory about crisis. Um, they get divorced. They have an affair. Or their partner does. They... Um, they have a, develop an addiction, they get depressed, uh, they behave in a way that causes them to have an accident, an illness, to get fired. The unconscious is so creative in trying to get our attention. It's an overwhelming time. If you've, well, some of you have been there. I've been there. It's, it's, it's a terrifying time of life. Um, I still think, if you are interested in it, that the best guide through this period of life for anybody is Jim Hollis's book, Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life. That's one of the best books I've ever encountered about this particular stage of faith development. I recommend it highly. It's a slow, painful journey through this stage of development. It's destabilizing for the person who's making the journey. It's destabilizing for everybody around the person who's making this journey. 
Because one of the things it requires is a relocation of authority. Authority is no longer out there or in a book or in a pope. Authority is here. And I, I, I begin to realize that I am the authority on my own experience. And uh, that causes a shift in identity. Because um, there are a lot of people who say, well, I no longer believe what the church believes, and walk away. But that's not the way the sentence should be constructed. The sentence should be constructed in, I no longer believe in the church, in what the church says, here's what I do believe. You have to have that completely parsed out. Um, so you might not take your church, former church as your home or your former political group as your home, but you still need to align with other people who are on a similar quest. And um, you begin in this stage of life, if you've got eyes to see, to see that people who grew up in other environments, in other countries, in other traditions, with other educations, with other skin colors, with other economic advantages or disadvantages, are just like you. And that's a major spiritual breakthrough. And you begin to walk around and, and if you really identify with the self that God has put in our bodies to walk around with, you could look at other people and say, how'd you get in that one? <laughs> I got in this one, but we're just alike, though we look different. Now, I just demonstrated the danger that's at this stage. It's a kind of ego inflation that allows one to look down on others uh, who've not made it to this esteemed level. Oh, I'm at this stage and you're not. So a successful passage into this stage four in my opinion, and be clear, that's all you're getting here. That's all you ever get here is my opinion. Don't take my word for any of this. Go check it out and test it in your own experience. This is my, my stuff. But <clears throat> we have a critical reflection. We have the opportunity here to do a critical reflection of the earlier stages and develop a deep appreciation for the contributions they have made to who we currently are. I would not be the person I am today without that history that's there for me. I own it all. I value it. I value what I learned from it. I think that to experience a stage of faith successfully, you have to commit yourself, not only to enhance living for yourself, but enhance living for everybody else as well. So that's stage four. I'm hoping that most people in this room are at least here, but there's more. Fowler calls stage five conjunctive faith, and here, it's where we get into the really fun stuff for me. This is what I mean when I talk about non-duality because you don't try to solve the paradoxes here. You don't try to resolve the polar tensions that are in life here. 
We just begin to experientially know, not know about, what Jesus meant when he said, become as a child. So, I will do a magic trick sometime, somewhere, and sometime we'll say, how'd you get into magic? And my question to you is, how'd you get out of it? You were earlier right here. You didn't have the cognitive skills at this level, but you believed in a kind of magic and a kind of miraculous. And it was awesome. It's what Buddha meant by beginner's mind and Jesus by having the mind of a child. That's what happens at this stage of faith. It's a wonderful thing. So here we can go back to the myths and the parables of our childhood and we can hear them again now, but with symbolic meaning. This uh, week, a friend of mine shared with me a story about his grandson. His grandson went to his first communion. And afterward, in the car, he was asking his mother to explain to him again the meaning of what they had done. And the mother said, well, when we take the wafer, we're eating the body of Jesus. And the little boy said, really? Yeah, we are. He said, how long do you think it will take us to heat this whole body? <laughs> That's a child, literal, non... But it's a wonderful response. How long will it take us to consume the body of the Christ? Oh, thank God we get the rest of our lives to do that. It's a wonderful way to look at that. Today is Ascension Sunday in the Christian liturgical calendar. So Ascension, uh, the story of Ascension is a parable. Um, that's what stage, people at this stage would call it, is a parable about how Jesus was experienced. He was experienced as alive after his resurrection and then he was experienced as gone. And now people at earlier stages of faith take this story literally. The disciples of Jesus go out onto a hillside and they see Jesus wafted up into the sky. Except one guy who doesn't see it because he has ascension deficit disorder. <laughs> you don't hear jokes like that anywhere else and that's not in my notes. So. So where did Jesus go? With our current cosmological understanding, we know there is nowhere. And that's the point. There is nowhere where Jesus is more or less than any other where, where he might be. You want me to say that sentence again? There is nowhere where Jesus is more or less than any other where, where he might be. That's stage five thinking. It's the kind of thing mystics are comfortable with. It makes your brain sore, wonderful to play with. So Jesus ascended to God. You're about to be given a test. Where is God? Not up, remember? Jesus ascended to God. Where is God? Here. 
here? So the risen Christ is right here. Right here. We are in the risen Christ. The risen, if we're Christian, the risen Christ is in us. That's the meaning of ascension. Not up here. Our calling, our challenge, our task is to make this real in the world. Not by arguing and fighting about the literal nature of it, but by loving. The world is hungry for this love. Now, I want to say there's a huge risk at this stage of faith development because people can be so drawn into their private world of esoteric, non-dual gibberish that we forget that there are other levels of development and other people. And consequently, people at this level can experience homelessness, spiritual, religious homelessness, until, and some of you may have trouble with this, but they experience homelessness until they commit to a tradition and live within that tradition. And here, these stage people can see, love, live their tradition's most important meanings while recognizing that they are relative and imperfect efforts to grab the truth. Got it? Now, you cannot name or imagine a saint in any tradition who is not committed to a tradition. Maybe that person have, has a lover's quarrel with that tradition until they die, but they have a commitment to a tradition. Richard Rohr has a commitment to a tradition. Ilya Delio has a commitment to a tradition. Brian McLaren has a commitment to a tradition. Those are three examples in the Christian tradition. Thich Nhat Hanh had a commitment to the Buddhist tradition. We can shoot for this. But there is another level. I just, most of us will never make it, but you need to know about it. If you're at this level, you won't tell me. Because people at this level don't announce it. It's what Fowler called universalizing faith. Uh, this is the person who knows enlightenment. And the person at this stage of the faith development has a pervasive sense of being at one with God and with with oneself, and even more importantly, the person at this stage of development is willing to invest themselves in what they believe regardless of what it costs them. Mother Teresa would be an example. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would be an example. Gandhi would be an example. And of course, Jesus would be an example. Now, we just scratch the surface. There's a lot more to deal with here. We can talk about stages of moral development, ego development, cognitive development, spiritual development. And nor have we ad addressed the, the issue of differences of stages within levels of development. That's a whole other topic. This is one of the reasons that integral theory is so important but so difficult to communicate. But you, do, you can see how I'm never going to run out of stuff to talk about. But, but what I mean by difference in stages of development, you can see how it's possible for somebody to have a PhD in some really esoteric subject and still believe literally that Jesus walked in water. 
they have different stages of development within areas of development. It gets it gets complicated. But those I have to wait. So I call this talk today, You Ought to Be On Stage. And this growth is one of the reasons I did magic today out of an experience I had early in my life in high school or college performing a magic trick for a talent show. I mean magic show for a talent show. And I did so, and I thought it went pretty well. And at the end of it, the MC looked at me as I walked off stage, and he said, you ought to be on stage. And, of course, that puffed me up, you know. I really like that. And then he said, there's one leaving soon. Be on it. <laughs> so everybody got a good laugh at my expense. I don't know what stage you're at at the moment in your faith development. But there's likely another one to shoot for. And you ought to be working at that. Our world is fragmented, divided, immature, because the people who inhabit the world are fragmented, divided, and immature. To heal the harm and hurt in the world, we can commit to being involved in the process of becoming whole within ourselves, with one another, with the sacred, and with the world. Amen, so be it. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step and see you here next week with John Howard. Thank you. Thank you.